Welcome to Shitlist. That's Chris Kitts. That's Donna Hellmuth. We're the movie podcast that dives into the grossest, most shocking films ever made, and we tell you all about them. We dig through the shit so you don't have to. Chris, how are you doing? I am doing well. I started testosterone like three days ago. Yay! Congratulations! Yay! Thank you. That's super exciting. It is exciting. I can't wait for uh, myself to have one hairy leg and a shitty mustache. <laughs> yes. I'm excited for this eventuality and celebrate your choice to become hairy leg mustache man. Thank you. I appreciate your support in this endeavor. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Not much to report. I'm still training for the thing that's in like a little over a week. So soon that will be done with and I will probably just still keep picking up heavy things because I can. Fuck yeah. Do you think you're going to strive to keep picking up heavier things or do you think you're going to kind of find a comfy plateau and stay on that that level? I think I would like to continue picking up heavier things and probably training for other uh, competitions. I really like the way that Strong Man and Strong Woman has affected like my body and the the shape that it has taken and how it makes me feel about my body that's been really cool and there's a couple other people who have expressed interest in moving to the quote-unquote dark side of lifting which is strongman although for me i would consider the dark side to be powerlifting so really we're rescuing people from powerlifting to come to strongman and do fun things instead (laughs) why is strongman slash woman considered the dark side by people It's not. I just said that. But (laughs) it's different from powerlifting because it does, you can do more. Powerlifting is really just like benching, squatting, and deadlifting. Whereas strongman is a lot of movement events and pick up heavy thing and move it to a place and have fun. I enjoy it more. Gotcha. Well, that's the most important thing is that you, you like it more. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into, uh, what we're covering this week. Because we have a pretty big double hitter this episode, and it is a little bit ambitious for us. (laughs) So there won't be a lot at the top, because we have a lot (laughs) to talk about on the way to the bottom. Yes, this is a big one. So we are covering Men Behind the Sun and Philosophy of a Knife. Chris, why did we choose this? Because we want to hurt ourselves. Yeah, real bad. (laughs) Because God is dead, Donna punched him. (laughs) And because God is dead, we have to talk about the place that God goes to die. And it's not where the dead go to die. It's actually not, surprisingly. Maybe a little bit of God, like dead God, is left, like a piece is in that movie. Well, God nugget. But a lot of him is in this one. (laughs) Yeah. It's bad. Yeah, y'all, at the top, this is almost seven hours worth of movie. (laughs) Yes, we took an entire day of our lives to watch both of these movies in the same day. And we regret it. I had a good time because I was with my best pal. Yes. And we got to eat, like, tasty wraps and smoothies. Yeah, that part was good. viewing utter human carnage and catastrophe. Yeah, and the human carnage and catastrophe we viewed happened to people. Well, some of it. Some of it. Some of it. Ugh. All right, so right up top, if you're not familiar with Men Behind the Sun or Philosophy of Knife, both of these movies pertain to the infamous Unit 731, which was a research unit of the Imperial Japanese Army. This came from the time period around World War II or just before. I'll give you a little more context about Unit 731 in a moment, because first, we have a lot of content warnings that we need to read off. Yeah. 
just to be completely upfront about the content of these movies. The first content warning I have is just yes. And then me screaming. And then screaming. (laughs) (laughs) It is most content warnings that you could imagine being attached to a movie. Some of these even like legitimately shocked us. There are some things in these movies that are so infrequently shown in movies that when I see them, I have to be like, oh. Despite how, I guess, like hardened we are by nasty movies, these, these still manage to be offensive to the eyes and soul. Much like Unit 731. Yes, exactly. So our content warnings include World War II, racism and racial supremacy, war crimes, forced captivity, forced drugging, cruel and inhumane treatment, torture and mutilation, dismemberment, experimental surgery, needles, electrocution, and child and infant abuse and death. And that that's included in both movies. Specific to Men Behind the Sun, there is also child nudity, implied pedophilia, actual animal abuse and death of rats and cats, actual cadavers, and autopsy footage. And then in Philosophy of a Knife, we also see prison exploitation, sexual abuse and assault, pregnancy, forced abortion, and suicide. Yeah, there's a lot in these movies. They are really horrific. I would not recommend watching them unless you are really prepared for it. We were very well prepared for these movies. We were like, all right, this is going to hurt. Let's make ourselves very comfy while we do it. Yeah. There were some cats. There were some cats, yeah. Not zero number. Cat comfort action and also good food and chippies. Donna, do you want to talk about the sort of broader historical context now that we've gotten that whole Jenga game out of the way? <laughs> that would be the worst Jenga game, that a Jenga of content warnings. If we were to make a game, that might be it. <laughs> I was going to say, hear me out though, like a Jenga game of content warnings and then what you pull when the tower falls, you have to conceptualize a movie based on the remaining blocks. <laughs> That's only allowed for, like, this podcast only. <laughs> yes, that would be a fun mini-sode. Yes. By fun, we mean reprehensible. Reprehensible, for sure. All right, so I do have some historical context to provide you for these movies, because especially with Men Behind the Sun, there's a lot that you kind of need to know going into it. There is a little bit of exposition in both movies about the, the history and what's led up to this Uh, situation, but it helps to know more about what was going on at the time. (laughs) Unit 731 was formed and was active during the Second Sino-Japanese War, which happened in the early 30s. It's kind of hard to say. A lot of people consider the occupation of Manchuria to be part of the war, but technically the war did not begin until 1937. But based on false pretenses, uh, which was an actual literal false flag operation called the Mukden Incident. The Kwantung Army of Imperial Japan invaded and occupied Manchuria, which is the northwestern region of China, which is comprised of three provinces. That occurred in 1931. And then the uh, Imperial Japanese turned that region into a puppet state called Manchukuo. At the time, the League of Nations condemned the invasion, including the U.S., but otherwise did almost nothing to stop it. Wait, are you saying that when it comes to um, geopolitical incidences where the United States' opinion is sought, we tend to do nothing? Yeah, it's almost like that happens a few times. Oh, <laughs> it's man. almost like a lot of the time, the United States doesn't really care. We're just a careless whisper on the wind. Yeah, but I mean, 
We do some about it later, I guess. <laughs> we do rock Japan quite badly in a few years. And not in a good way. Not in a good way. So after the Marco Polo Bridge incident in 1937, then Imperial Japan initiated a full-scale invasion of China, which then kicked off the Second Sino-Japanese War, which was an imperialist campaign of total war that resulted in the deaths of an estimated 10 to 25 million Chinese civilians alone, as well as 4 million Chinese and Japanese military personnel. Due to the combination of the grisly nature of these deaths and the high rate of death during this war, it's often referred to as the Asian Holocaust. I was going to say, that's more than two holocausts worth of people. Yeah. And there is something to be said about how little or maybe how glossed over this time period is, this war is in Western education. Yeah. This was a really horrific time period. The Japanese occupation on the Asian continent was quite bad. They rampaged over a lot of human life, and it was very bad. I think that preparing for this episode is honestly the most I ever learned about the Second Sino-Japanese War, and, like, I have a non-zero number of college degree. I find that horrifying. Yes, agreed. Me too. I, I learned a lot. And if you would like to le learn more about the rise of Imperial Japan, specifically during the early 20th century, I highly recommend listening to the podcast Hardcore History and their Supernova in the East series. Dan Carlin goes into that in very well-researched and thoughtful. He just does a great job of explaining all of that for especially a Western audience that tends to be a little ignorant to these topics. So specifically, Unit 731 was established almost immediately after Japan began its occupation of Manchuria in 1932. Initially, it was known as Togo Unit and later Ishii Unit. Uh, it was a covert unit of the Kwantung Army dedicated to the development of biological and chemical warfare to support the Empire's warfront capabilities. It was initially located in uh, the city of Harbin in Manchukuo or Manchuria, but later as the research became better funded and the military officials were like, this is going very well, we should provide more resources, it moved into a prison in Zhongma prison outside of Harbin. And then eventually they built an entire massive prison compound. The, the book that I read compared it to Auschwitz in size. Massive, absolutely massive and incredibly isolated. They forcibly evacuated something like between 6 and 10 villages and dispossessed something like 600 families to build this compound. So it was massive. It was officially known as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department, but it actually conducted extremely unethical and inhumane experiments on living people. They were prisoners used as test subjects. The majority of them were Chinese, but it also included Russians and Koreans. Uh, living in the area. A lot of them were political prisoners, but they also included communists, anti-Japanese partisans, as well as people experiencing homelessness or basically just anybody in the area that the police, who were obviously Japanese and were pretty much being paid to lock up people to be sent to Unit 731, they would just send whatever des undesirable they wanted to get rid of to Ping Fang. Rough. It was bad. Some believe that there were American or British POWs that were sent there. We don't have hard evidence of that, but there was a huge swath of people that were sent there because Harbin is right on the railroad and there was such a diverse uh, population around it. 
So the subjects that were used by Unit 731 were referred to as Maruta, which means logs, um, owing to the fact that the facility's cover was as a lumber mill. So all day and all night, there were trucks and trains going to the Pingfeng compound that were disguised as lumber, but there were people in there. Yeah. One thing I want to jump in and note is that, um, obviously, I am whiter than a sheet of paper, but there are some many Chinese folks who do consider that to be a slur. We are going to try not to use it unless we are quoting the movie, and even then, I don't think we pulled any quotes that use it. Not really. Uh, I will try not to use it. It is used frequently in the movie and yeah. it is used frequently in my reading because that was just the obviously derogatory term that the Japanese used for Chinese prisoners. Yeah. Unit 731 was formed and led by uh, Surgeon General Shiro Ishii, who eventually became Lieutenant General over time. He is basically the analog in this case for Nazi Germany's Joseph Mengele. This was his brainchild from the early 20s. He advocated for bioweapons and chemical warfare for a very, very long time. And this was all his doing. Like, he was the driving force between creating Unit 731. And not just Unit 731. There were many other units in the Japanese army that were doing highly unethical, awful shit in the name of science. But in particular, fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. He's a nightmare person. And the more I read about him, the more I was like, this person was fucking awful. Yeah. Awful. (laughs) I don't know how to say the thing I want to say, because I almost said you could make the argument Joseph Mengele had a soul, but no. No, he didn't. I don't know. I, I don't want to say that uh, Shiroishi was a monster because he wasn't. He was a guy. He was yeah. a highly motivated, ambitious man. Yes. He is he a person who made choices. Yeah. He made a lot of choices. A lot of really horrific choices. Yeah. Unit 731, along with its affiliated research units, used living human subjects and experiments to develop stronger weaponized versions of the bubonic plague, typhoid, cholera, anthrax, and a lot of other bacteria. A lot of things that I can't pronounce, so I won't try. They cultivated colonies of rats and fleas in order to better transmit the plague, mass-produced bacteria, and by I mean mass-produced, it was a factory. Mm-hmm. They had it down to a literal science. Yeah. They were producing so much bacteria in the Pingfeng facility, and they worked on developing more efficient ways of bombing cities with plague and other bacteria. This was actually field tested in several Chinese cities, leading to outbreaks of plague. They were also testing poison gas and methods of bombardments. Prisoners were subjected to various types of experiments, including frostbite experiments, pressure chamber experiments, amputation, venereal diseases, vivisection, and virtually anything else the scientists could come up with. I've seen multiple sources say that as time went on, the research became less and less rigid and scientific and more just people doing awful shit to powerless people. Towards the end of World War II, as the Soviets were closing in, Unit 731 was liquidated. They destroyed all the evidence, allegedly, and they killed all of the remaining prisoners and workers. The buildings were later destroyed, although the central building in the Pingfeng camp was built too strong, so it mostly survived their bombings. 
After the war, many of the officers went on to live out their lives without punishment and even take on greater positions in government life, in medical fields, in universities. They went on to do other things and never account for anything they did with Unit 731. Lieutenant General Ishii was granted immunity by the United States in exchange for information, and then he died in 1959, having never been brought to justice. Do you know if the incorporation of General Ishii and other members of the Japanese army, was that part of Operation Paperclip or was it separate? I believe when it comes to the Japanese medical officers and scientists, I don't think that's counted in uh, Operation Paperclip. But it is basically the same thing because General Ishii allegedly was employed by the United States to oversee some bioweapons testing in uh, Fort Detrick. I haven't confirmed that. There are a lot of suspicions and beliefs that he assisted the U.S. during the Korean War, but unconfirmed, especially because so they they were able to provide information to the U.S. in exchange for this immunity. So obviously not all evidence was destroyed. Mm -hmm. Um, The Soviets likewise have their own information that they received from the officers that they tried and provided lenient sentences to. But yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say what actually becomes of most of these people because some of them just disappear. I have no further information on what else Ishii was involved in. Gotcha. But I know for sure he was never tried for anything. He got to live out the rest of his life. Love that. Love that. Love that for him. Most of this information also did not come about until the later half of the 20th century. At least in the U.S., these documents were classified until the late 70s, and then they were disclosed. Japan has a very fraught relationship with World War II, to say the least. It has formally acknowledged the existence of Unit 731 because they released a list of officers in 2018. But they will not acknowledge the human lives lost during those experiments. They do not acknowledge the experiments themselves. It's not taught about in Japan. It's not talked about in Japan. There have been multiple lawsuits filed over the decades to seek compensation for victims' families. But in large part, Japan's response to that is all of that stuff was taken care of in the post-war treaties. So those descendants cannot get any kind of recompense for what their family members went through. To that end, anything that their families lost because so much was dispossessed of the Chinese people. They, so much land was taken, among other things, obviously, but yeah. a lot was lost. By and large, the unidentified victims of Unit 731 are silenced, and their experiences are only told in various witness testimonies, anecdotes, and whatever documentation can be gleaned from the U.S. and Russian archives. It is believed at least, at least 10,000 people died at the facility, 3,000 from lab experiments, and another 200 to 400,000 died as a result of biological warfare. But witness and staff testimony suggests that this number of experimental subjects was much, much, much higher, with one former medical officer saying that he conducted thousands of vivisections himself. If you want to learn more about Unit 731, and it's everything, the main source that I used for this was Sheldon Harris's Factories of Death, which seems to be the preeminent source material whenever I've found articles or anything talking about Unit 731. I also will post a link to that text in the show notes. 
Thank you. And Donna did the bulk of the research for the episode, and I think that's just really important to call out. I will sound like a rube, so thank you, Donna. It was really interesting in a terrible way, but also very bizarre to be reading Factories of Death at work. (laughs) (laughs) Very weird. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, at least I hope, as odious as when I was like trying to read Rise and Fall of the Third Reich in public, and it just has a giant swastika on the spine, (laughs) which I eventually covered with a post-it note, but I was like, oh, I can't take this anywhere. Yeah, no, it's a rough one. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit uh, about how this episode is going to work, since this is a a double whammy of death. Uh, I take that back. So like we said earlier, this episode represents almost seven hours of movie. It's a lot to try and condense into what's already going to be a longer than average episode, although we're going to try to keep it tight. So we're going to use a variation on our normal structure. We're going to do the basics for each movie first. That's going to be the IMDb summary, uh, the cast and crew, tagline, release date, box office, and runtime, and the kind of usual, have we seen it? What did we think or expect? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, We'll get that out of the way first for both movies. And then Donna is going to take us through a recap of The Men Behind the Sun. We'll do the production history, reactions, etc. after that. And then I will take us through philosophy of a knife. And then we'll do the production history, reactions, etc. for that. And then after both movies have been walked through, slogged through, traipsed through, we will do our hot takes, the normal 1 to 5 rating on our shit list scale, and our outro. So we're going to try and keep it sensible and easy to follow. So do we want to get into Men Behind the Sun first? Yeah, I think that's the best place to start. Um, Just because Philosophy of a Knife takes so many liberties with the history here that... um, It sure does. (laughs) It's better, I think, to start with what could be considered the more tactful and factual approach. And then we'll get to what is arguably like a women in prison film. Yeah. At the very least, Men Behind the Sun was approached initially as a documentary and then kind of became more of a story about um, the youth squadron. But before I get into that, the IMDb summary for Men Behind the Sun is Japanese troops round up Chinese and Russian prisoners of war and take them to Unit 731, where they're horribly tortured and experimented on to test new biological weapons. Yeah, that's accurate. Both historically... (laughs) And for this movie. Yeah. I also want to note that the actual name of this movie is Man Behind the Sun, which I believe is referring to uh, Lieutenant General Ishii. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, it's people just call it Men Behind the Sun because it's about the larger Unit 731 and also, in a sense, the Japanese army. Yeah. That is interesting, though, because unless you're talking to someone who, like, is familiar with this specific historical nugget... I feel like we don't learn about the individuals who comprised this unit. I mean, we don't know who many of them are. Well, I guess we do now, but... We know some of them. For a very long time, we didn't. Yeah. And so it felt like we didn't know who General Ishii was for many of us. And so for it to go from, like, man to man is very interesting. Right. And this movie focuses quite a bit on Lieutenant General Ishii for good reason, considering he is the architect of this entire fucking hellscape awful bullshit it's him yeah he's the cause of this he did this and i'll get into more of that later but i don't know if they are still alive today 
but there were still people who were former members of Unit 731 who gave interviews in the late 20th century who were like, he was our commander. We did what he told us to do. We don't think he was wrong. It was war. We would do anything to ensure the future of Japan. So that sentiment did not die with World War II. Uh, It's really fucked up. Boy, researching this has been a trip, let me tell you. For the cast and crew, I'm going to start with the director. He is credited as T.F. Mo. He was born Munutontve in Shandong, China, and he and his family emigrated to Taiwan during the Chinese Civil War. Mu went to school for film, but it was poorly equipped, so he mostly had to teach himself film theory and was deeply influenced by Italian neorealism, like Salo. Yes. And thinking about it, I was like, oh, I see it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I do see it. That's a very good point. Man, I can't wait for us to do Salo. I'm excited for that day, which is a fucked up thing to say, but I'm looking forward to it. He was seemingly always drawn to controversial subjects, and his early films were banned over homosexual overtones. Uh, And after he produced Men Behind the Sun, he went on to make a film called Black Sun, The Nanking Massacre, which, if you know anything about the Nanking Massacre, also known as the Rape of Nanking, it's more heinous, awful war crime shit. Yeah. So, uh, I did note that he did interviews in the late 90s, and then I couldn't find anything else about what he was up to until his death in Philadelphia in 2019. I was like, what are you doing there? (laughs) Hey, don't go to die in Philly. That's a terrible place to die. Yeah, live in Philly. Die somewhere else. Yeah. There's no tagline on this one. It was released in December of 1988. Its box office was $1.4 million, which is actually kind of surprising to me considering how limited it was able to be screened Yeah, for good reasons. It was not rated for the U.S., uh, but it was rated level 3, which is the equivalent of NC-17 in Hong Kong. Its runtime is 105 minutes, which is a peach compared to Philosophy of a Night. Yeah, just you fucking wait. I don't think either of us had seen this before, had you? No, I had seen clips from it. Mm-hmm. If you dwell in the parts of the internet I dwell in, oh, uh, yeah. you see the frostbite experiment scene from this at least once before you turn 13. I did. <laughs> For sure. So we had both heard of it, definitely. It is notorious. My understanding of it was that it was full of horrible shit that you'll need to scrub your brain from after yes i knew that it was going to contain a bunch of vivisection and brutal experimentation how about you what did you expect going into this uh more or less the same so this film is graphic in the amount of content warnings it contains but i think i expected it to be gorier than it was not that it's not but i think i expected there to be more I did too, and I think part of that is owing to the fact that it was made in 1980s Hong Kong and China. T.F. Mu often cites that he did not have any kind of special effects, resources, or budget, or anything. So everything you see on the film had to be improvised in some fashion. Some of it works, some of it is a little too fucking real, and other parts... I don't think his complete focus was just the experiments. But yeah, it was not as gory as I expected it to be. Yeah, big agree. Do you want me to talk a little bit about philosophy of a knife? Please do. I wish you wouldn't, but you will. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. All right. So philosophy of a knife. 
The IMDb summary for this film reads, A graphic docudrama detailing the history of Unit 731, where thousands of innocent Chinese prisoners of war were fatally experimented on. This is not inaccurate. I almost spit my water at docudrama, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, emphasis on the drama. Drama. I think that the director, Andrei Iskanov, would make the argument that the docu is there. I would make the argument he's full of shit. That's bullshit. This is not a docudrama. This is a sensationalized retelling in a very specific perspective. Yes. So, it was written, produced, edited, and directed by Andrei Iskanov, like I said. It was also, interestingly, produced by Stephen Biro, the president of Unearthed Films, who distributed this film, a few others, and, unfortunately, Where the Dead Go to Die. Yep. And I realized it when we were watching the unbelievable intro credits to this film, and I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. I know that fucking distribute. I know that. I know Unearthed Films. Yep. Those bastards. Yeah. I'm so mad, and I really feel like this is becoming the movie we can't get away from. Yeah, I think so. It's important to note that Philosophy of a Knife has followed Chris around specifically for more than 10 years. Yeah, should I touch on that? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. It's absolutely, it's bizarre how long okay. this has been in your life. So back in college, I want to say it was maybe my junior or senior year, I had a project called Bad Taste Philly, which in many ways was the predecessor to Shitlist. Myself and two other classmates of mine, we reviewed terrible films. And we partnered with, oh my god, it was a Philadelphia company, the name of which I can't remember. Fuck. Oh well. Uh, we partnered with an individual, like an independent distributor of cult, B and exploitation cinema, who sent us like an envelope unmarked of five films <laughs> that they were like, we would love for you to review these if you would maybe give us some advertising on your website. Nice. And we did. And one of those five movies was Philosophy of a Knife. Jesus. Which I have tried to watch. So many times. Yeah, I think three or four times in sincerity. And I've never gotten through this film, and you will find out why shortly. But yeah, I've had this DVD with me for over 10 years now, and this is the first time we've ever gotten through it. So hey, Sisyphus gets to the top eventually. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the cast for this film is a lot of people you probably don't recognize and that I don't think have been in anything else. Or if they have, it's been a lot of independent like Russian and Czech films. So the only person in this cast who is maybe recognizable to someone is Manoush, who I can only describe, and I'm actually ripping Donna off on this, as an Aldi brand Isabella Rossellini. 100%. Sounds just like her. It's like the whole, the style of narration, the intonation, it's so discount Isabella Rossellini, it hurts. The moment she started talking, we were both like, wait a minute, yeah. is that Bjork? No, it's Isabella. Yeah, exactly. You may have seen her before, it's slightly possible. She has an uncredited role as the nymphomaniac in 2001's darling twee indie film hit wonder Amelie, and she's also in 2010's Avant-Garde, aka James St. James Presents Avant-Garde, which is maybe just me trying really hard to connect this back to Party Monster, since James St. James wrote the book Disco Bloodbath, on which Party Monster is based. Ah, that's where I know the name from. Yes. Uh, he wrote Disco Bloodbath, and interestingly, that movie, um, Avant-Garde, was supposed to allegedly feature Michael Alec after he got out of prison, but we all know how that went. Rest in peace, Michael Alec. No aw. No aw. No, <laughs> Sorry. Fuck that guy, but he played an important part in a part of history. Right. It's really important to Correct. Me. 
Manoush is also a musician whose band Cyanide Savior contributed the song Dead Before Born for the end credits. And uh, she also lends her voice to the intro of the song Forgive Me, which was written by Iskanov, the director, and recorded and performed for the opening credits of the film. The tagline is God created heaven, man created hell. Sure. 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 Not inaccurate. The box office for this film can't find it anywhere, but we do know for a fact that it does sell for $247.99 on eBay. That's wild. So I have a a $247.99 treat sitting here (laughs) next to me. We'll see who wants to fucking buy it. (laughs) Yeah. I will not be selling my copy on Amazon. Sorry, Amazon, not eBay, because we have plans for it at the end of this episode. Yes. Plans. Plans within plans. Yes, we have plans within plans. It's all very Frank Herbert's Dune. (laughs) But this film is not rated, has never been rated, will never be rated, and the runtime is four hours and nine minutes, also known as 247 minutes. You heard that right. That's almost as long as The Batman. Oh my, Uh, we should have talked about that at the beginning of this episode. We watched The Batman in theaters and y'all- Don't. It's an hour longer than it needed to be. I looked at the runtime and saw two hours and 55 minutes and I wanted to die. It was not as bad as Philosophy of a Knife. This legitimately took so long. By the final hour, I was like, please, God, kill me now. Yeah. Like, make this end. End my suffering. Yeah, (laughs) it was. This movie is truly about human suffering because it makes you suffer. I think we were both kind of crawling out of our own skins by the end, especially because the last hour of the film contains the most interesting content, but by the time you reach hour three, you're just like, I don't care. Your soul has left your body and you have become a jerky husk of a human being. Yes. All right. All right. So I guess we will kick off now with Men Behind the Sun. Get ready. It's coming at you. Here we go. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> yeah. Air horns. The movie itself begins with a title card which says, Friendship is friendship. History is history. This doesn't come up really again in the movie and without context doesn't make a lot of sense. It wasn't until I read an interview with the director, T.F. Mo that it made any kind of sense. I will circle back to that at the end. The movie began with a condensed explanation of the Japanese invasion of Manchuria and the initiation of the experimental research program on Chinese prisoners. And as a side note, the English dub of this movie is wild. Yes, it was like big (laughs) 90s anime dub energy. Just like, wow, oh my goodness. (laughs) I think this is much colder than Chiba, right, Ishikawa? It really makes no difference to me. We're not going home anyway. We're stuck here. Look at him. It's only been a few days and Ishikawa already misses home. Ishikawa's just a mama's boy. He even broke down and cried when she said goodbye to him. You cried as well, didn't you? No, I didn't. Only my mother and my sister did. Yeah, my mom cried too. I wish I could find an English subs or just another cut of this. We just watched what was available, I think, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It was on YouTube, right? Yeah. Wild that that's on YouTube. I ju- that just occurred to me that Man Behind the Sun is available for watching for free on YouTube.com. Holy shit, you're right. And like, I have seen content creators get dinged for far for less yes. than the child <laughs> nudity in this film. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie good job youtube algorithm and sensors like what the fuck wow wow 
I also noted here that I thought that this was going to be much more like a documentary going into it. Me too. But in the beginning of the movie, we're introduced to characters. They are mostly fictional. We meet a group of very young soldiers waiting uh, to head out to what would ultimately be uh, the Unit 731 compound. They are kind of just chatting, talking about their families, talking about the war, and the people that they've lost. And nearby, they take notice of a man who's kind of dressed in rags. I took this to be a Chinese man because yes. he is just hanging out in the snow. He has been thoroughly dispossessed yes. of anything and everything. Very much so. And they look at him with fascination, like he's some sort of animal or strange creature. And then they throw a food at him. And then I guess he like throws it back. They just tackle him and shove it in his mouth violently. Yeah. It is a hell of a power move, though, when he's just like, nah. Yeah, he's like, fuck you, fuck your food. But this is kind of a prelude to the rest of the film, which is almost childlike, violent, like, just throwing shit at Chinese people in the worst ways. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that this film was just throwing shit at Chinese people. I know. Uh, so Ugh. this is the youth core. Yes. I believe that it is true that there was a youth squadron present at the compound in Pingfeng because the compound was rather large. They had a lot, there was something like 3,000 personnel there at a given time. Most people did not actually see the prisoners because the buildings where the prisoners were kept were highly guarded and a lot of the experiments were carried out underground. So you could exist on this compound and... I mean, you'd have to be pretty naive, but you could get away with not knowing what was going on. After we meet the youth squadron, we also meet a formal looking man who arrives at a large administrative building where soldiers stand in formation. One of the men referred to him as Old 731 Ishii. An officer admonishes the group of young soldiers and says they're part of the U Unit 30 731's youth squadron. And this is how we meet all of the characters that we will be following throughout the movie. Our main character will be Lieutenant General Shiro Ishii, who I mentioned earlier was the head of this entire research unit. And the youth squadron, who in this movie act as witnesses and kind of our eyes into what's going on. And they also sometimes become unwitting participants in the experiments to follow. We also meet an unnamed <laughs> old Japanese man who sings, drinks, and dances while he tosses mangled, dismembered limbs into a crematorium oven. We see him a couple times throughout the movie, and he is no less drunk and dancing, despite yeah. the body parts surrounding him. He is living his best fucking life, and because of that, might be the worst character. Yeah, he, he might be the worst. It's hard, I mean, Shio is probably the fucking worst, but this yeah. dude also the worst. <laughs> of all of the just-following-orders guys in the film, he might be the worst. So uh, the movie notes that it is 1945, which is a little bit important for us to know because that's very late in the war. These experiments have been going on for about 13 years. That's a lot. That's a lot of experimentation. And that's a lot of people who've been killed. Also, the end is very, very much near for Imperial Japan. In this scene, we see Imperial Japanese officers toasting to one another around dinner. They declare that they need to increase the quality and quantity of the bacteria being used in the war. Would you say that uh, they really need to speed up the experiments? Yes, they need to speed up these experiments. Do they need to speed up the experiments? I think they need to speed up these experiments. 
They might need to, yeah. I heard that they need to speed up the experiments. <laughs> and we say this because there are so many interludes with the officers that is literally just speed up these experiments. Make this faster. Quicker. <laughs> yes. Faster. The line, we need to speed up these experiments, is occurs no fewer than three times. Yes. We are not paraphrasing. No, that is completely true. It happens a lot. So we also see Lieutenant General Ishii complaining about how he would have been a full general if he hadn't been screwed by military headquarters in Tokyo. As a historical note, this is actually true. Ishii was known to be very uh, bitter about his ranking and that he couldn't be a full general. Even though it's noted that he definitely had ties to Tokyo and would not have been a lieutenant general due to his standing as a medical officer, there's no way that would have happened had he not had a lot of friends and help from, you know, Tokyo. Ah, nepotism only got him so far. Nepotism got him real fucking far, though. (laughs) Wasn't there kind of some infighting between different branches of the Imperial Army at this time, too? Very much so. There was a lot of infighting between the different branches of the Japanese military. Everyone was vying for better positions. Also, a a bunch of higher-ranking officers were assassinated. I think that occurred earlier than 1945, though. They were assassinated by ultra-nationalists who believed that these officers were standing in the way of Japan, seeing its divine destiny become realized as a world superpower. So those guys got assassinated, and among those was actually Ishii's friend and mentor, General Nakamoto. So that guy died. But this was a very tense period of time, because at the brink of losing the war, everyone's kind of eating each other alive. Gotcha. In the next scene, we see a couple of the boys from Youth Squadron sneak out of their barracks without permission, which is a real big no-no. They're looking for something that belongs to one of the boys, and he says it's a ball. At first we were like, he's looking for a bowl? (laughs) A bowl? A bowl? A bowl? It's a ball. Could not figure it out. He said it was gifted to him by his brother, and it was one of the only things that he kept with him when he left Japan. There's a scene in here that I really wanted to touch on. I forget the exact order, it doesn't really matter, but um, Sergeant Kawasaki, who's overseeing the youth corps, wakes up all of the remaining members of the youth corps, stands them up in a line, and then, super slapstick comically, marches down the line, slapping them in the face one by one. It is not supposed to be funny at all, but all I could think of was, like, this being a weird homage to Full Metal Jacket, which came out a year before. Yeah, I definitely got that sense, too. But it did come off pretty slapsticky. Maybe that's the sound effects. I don't know. Yeah, the slaps are definitely, like, dubbed over (laughs) uh, in this scene, which really does lend to that, like, Laurel and Hardy old-school Hollywood (laughs) slapstick humor feeling, which is absolutely not what is being gone for here, but just the confluence of things that comprise this scene really, like, A+. And you make a good point, too, that, like, there are moments in this movie that are not intended to be funny, but are accidentally funny, either just because of, like, the acting or the sound mixing or the sound effects. There are things that are just accidentally funny in an extremely not funny movie. Yes. And it makes you feel like an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, like, there are definitely times in this movie where I was uncomfortable and tried to be funny and then I was like no you're being bad and then there were moments where I was like this is legitimately hilarious and they didn't mean for it to be yes 
So the boys wander into a building where we see swarming black rats on the floor. And we also see there are men in full hazmat suits and gas masks who are doing their scientist thing. Evil scientist and evil scientist. Science! And um, the boys end up falling into a room with the swarming rats, which they kick away. Sad face. These poor rats deserve better. But the boys manage to escape before the hazmat-suited men discover them. But they do get caught in another hallway. One of them attempts to run away, and he flees across the snow outside as a siren wails, and the officers start shooting at him to prevent his escape. But he falls into an electrified fence and dies. The ball he was searching for rolls back down the hill to the feet of his friends in the youth squadron. Afterwards, the officers have a meeting reiterating that the experiments must be sped up. We have to speed up these experiments! But also the absolute importance of uh, confidentiality and nothing getting out of the compound. This was a really big deal for Unit 731. If anybody caught wind of what they were doing, they would have to basically liquidate that person. There were two previous locations that were just completely wiped off the map once they were done with them. So the Japanese took their secrecy very, very seriously. To the extent that, for the most part, the people who lived in that area didn't know what was going on. One of the officers also alleges that there's an informant, and he fingers Colonel Nakamoto, who has apparently (laughs) ridiculed the water filter system which was developed by General Ishii, who did in fact do that thing in real life. He patented a lot of uh, very important inventions, including Hmm. this water filtration system that he was very proud of. And in a subsequent scene at an assembly... Power move! (laughs) Yes. This scene was also kind of funny. Fucking incredible. Like, one of the best power moves I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. In the most unfortunate setting. I will never forget this. I hope I can do this to another human being at one point in my life. Somebody buy me a water purification filter so that I can do this thing. Yes. So Ishii is presenting his water filter and he is about to make a demonstration of it. So he calls forth Nakamoto and orders him to piss into this water filter, watching him as he does so. And then Ishii picks up the glass and fucking drinks it in front of him. So good. That's fucking that. Power move, bitch. On a fun note, this supposedly actually happened. (laughs) Holy shit, you're kidding me. But I'm skeptical of this story because it was not with one of the other generals or colonels. It was with the Emperor Hirohito. According to the book that I referenced earlier, Factories of Death, Dr. Ishii was famous for demonstrating the water purifier he had developed in pretty wild ways. He was a very eccentric man. Um, And he also purified his own urine. Supposedly, during one of his uh, demonstrations for the emperor himself, he offered a glass of his own purified urine to Hirohito, who respectfully declined. And then Ishii drank it himself. Holy fuck. Incredible. (laughs) Can you imagine this dude just whipping out his A, water purification filter, and then B, just being like... Let me demonstrate by pissing in it and just, like, pissing? Piss. Hey, Emperor. Just piss. Give me a sec. I just gotta piss into my water filtration system. Aw, beans. I wish I had some urine to demonstrate my water filtration system. Oh, you mean from my own penis? Let me do that for you right here and (laughs) right now. penis water. Don't say penis water. (laughs) Do not. So that's fucking 
wild to wild. know. Um, and wild. I hope that is true. I hope that actually fucking happened. Imagine going to the most important person in your nation and being like, hey. A person who is a literal god on earth. Yeah. <laughs> Just drink my pee pee. Hey, Mr. President Joseph Robinette Biden, will you drink my pee pee? <laughs> I would absolutely. Maybe he might like it too much. Never mind. No. No. Don't drink. <laughs> not tea. Joseph Robinette Biden. Not not our Biden. <laughs> anyway, um. So we see yes. the U Squadron being drilled and being admonished for acting like schoolgirls after their fucking friend died. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. We also in a uh, almost unrelated scene we see guards. Uh, stopping a woman i don't know if she is entering the compound or if she is being shuttled elsewhere but she is carrying a crying baby and the guards take the baby from her shove her down an incline and then bury the baby in snow yeah pretty awful yeah and they they linger on that too yeah for a while it's not fun in the next scene, we are back with the youth squadron who are wondering where they are. They think that it might be a hospital, but there are too many dead bodies. It might be a, some sort of medical site, but there are too many soldiers. They don't really know what's going on, and they don't know what's happening. Nearby, they notice that a mute Chinese boy who's been watching them through a fence, and they, they chase him down, but they end up letting him go because he's just a little boy and he's a mute. He can't say anything about what he's seeing, but also he just seems like an innocent kid. And at this point, they don't really like perceive him as anything but just an innocent kid, which becomes important later. Yes. And also, this entire, like, playful chase scene is, I swear to God, set to you the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. Yes. It is some, like, running slow-mo on the beach, gentle piano. <laughs> yeah. It is so atonal within the context of the film. I was just like, who chose this? It's very odd. And, and to that note, I did read that T.F. Mo did not enjoy the soundtrack to this movie and that he hmm. hated it. Interesting. I guess it's just what they had to put on, I guess. I don't know. It's actually legitimately from Chariots of Fire. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Back inside Unit 731, uh, the Lieutenant General and his officers are following up and checking on the active experiments. We see a doctor running out of a lab puking, while another says that he's not adjusting well, even though they're actively working on the experiments. Colonel Nakamoto runs up at this point to report that he's been moved to the Southern Front, i.e. the Pacific Theater of War, <laughs> yeah. where they're suffering major losses. So essentially yeah. he's being sent to die, and that is very obviously Shira's doing. Also a power move, Also like, a power arguably move. <laughs> a shittier one. It's a rough one, much shittier one. We also see a man who's being dissected on a table after having been exposed to a lethal bacteria. And Ishii explains that it behooves them to work on live subjects to see the effects in real time. I have also read in other interviews with former staff and personnel of Unit 731 that they frequently performed vivisections and surgery on subjects without anesthetic under the belief that anesthetic could interfere with the experiment or with their organs. It's really, really awful. Can I tell you a fact I learned today? And I have not fact-checked this, so mm -hmm. I might eat a shoot later. Go but, for it. Um, I learned that in some places, up until the 80s, it was believed that babies didn't feel pain, and so, like, surgeries done on infants would sometimes be done without anesthetic. Yes. Wait, did you just know that? I knew that, um, uh, and that is also a thing in this, in some of the experiments that they performed on infants. 
But I'm not I'm not going to go into that too much because A, it's very upsetting. And yeah. B, it's not really depicted in this movie, actually. Yeah, I just learned that. Sorry. No, it's it's fucked up. I don't know why we ever thought, oh, at, you're just magically, you magically don't feel pain as a baby. What you the don't fuck? have your kneecaps fully formed, and I guess neither is your nervous system. Yeah, what the fuck? What were we thinking? Jesus. Scream. So after this, the youth squadron is assembled, and in this scene, they are trained to call the Chinese prisoners a derogatory euphemism of Maruta. This is clearly a brainwashing scene where they have a prisoner standing in front of them and they are pretty much forced to purge any kind of connection or empathy that they have with this person. Mm -hmm. So they just end up screaming this word and then they are ordered to beat the prisoner and they do. Yeah. It's just weird with the anime dubbing to think back on like, it's like, oh God, can you imagine if they were using like the N word, but it was like anime dubbing? Yeah. Jeez. Jesus Christ. It's a lot. The anime dubbing really makes this feel uh, otherworldly. It's bizarre. But the prisoner is later dragged back to his cell where there are a number of other prisoners who begin to discuss, you know, what's going on and how they can escape their absolute hell. Afterwards, the youth squadron are showered and prepared in clean white suits. And this is a really, really weird scene because there are a lot of weird lingering shots on their naked bodies. And they are little boys. I think this is inferring that Sergeant Kawasaki is a pedophile. That felt like that was what was being inferred, yeah. And for context, like, these are teenage boys. They are not adults. And Mm -hmm. if they are, I I don't believe it. (laughs) They are just, like, visibly, like, way too young, and also everything about it is bad. Yeah. It's gross, and I was like, no, please don't. Fortunately, we are not subjected to any pedophilia on screen, but this is very strongly implied. Yes. Now we get our actual, first actual experiment scene, and it is the frostbite experiment. A female prisoner, who I will note is actually T.F. Mu's niece, as she was the only person who was willing to do this, she is dragged from her cell and forced to stand outside with her arms fixed, outstretched, and bared. Soldiers pour freezing water over her hands, and she is forced to stand there over a very long period of time as her hands and arms freeze. Eventually, she's brought back into a laboratory uh, where the youth squadron are viewing the experiment as a scientist dips her arms into 15 degrees Celsius water. After her arms are pulled back out, he rips her flesh off and you just kind of see bones. Yeah, it's wild. Really wild. I don't know if that's what would actually happen, but this effect looks really good for 19, what, 87? 88, 87? 88. They also carry out immediately another experiment by flash freezing a prisoner's arms at, I believe it was negative 196 degrees. Mm -hmm. And then they smash his hands apart with a stick. A historical note, this happened. This was a real experiment. From my reading, it happened pretty much exactly like this. In various stages of frostbite, There was a lot of different ways that they treated this. They were looking for a way to treat frostbite because not only was it an issue in northern China already where it's incredibly freezing, but they anticipated having to fight the Soviet army in freezing conditions. So these experiments to them were incredibly important. Yeah, those freezing conditions in Russia killed, I think, the most German soldiers of, like, any other part of World War II. So for context, like, this was a very real and concerning threat if they had to go to war with the USSR. Yes, Which eventually they did, but quickly lost. Or rather, they surrendered very quickly. 
In the next scene, we are at a dinner party. We. <laughs> hey. Yay. <laughs> Whiplash. There are medical officers there and the youth squadron are there. And one character, I don't think we ever got his name, but there is one specific uh, staff member here who is clearly second guessing and knows that this is wrong, but he is very much the only person here who thinks so. Yeah. He tries to talk to Ishikawa, who is our main youth core character that we follow throughout the movie. He tries to talk to him about how the prisoners are human beings and that the things being done to them are inhumane. But Ishikawa and the rest of the party deny this. Ishikawa immediately rejects this, takes his food, and goes somewhere else. They completely reject this dude's idea that Chinese people are humans too. Um, next, we see Ishikawa playing with a mute boy uh, across the barbed wire fence, and they start developing kind of a, a little friendship. Ugh. Ugh. It gave me big boy in the striped pajamas vibes and yes, I hated it. It made me very sad. We get another experiment. This time the prisoners are being injected with something that they don't know about. Half of the prisoners have been injected, but the other half have not. And they don't know what is going on. In the very next cut, we listen to a couple of doctors talking to each other about trying a new, more powerful strain of bubonic plague and finding out if the German scientists have created anything as powerful as they can. But Ishii says that the Germans are far behind them. And then uh, we have another speed up these experiments. <laughs> yeah. Speed up these experiments. You really have to speed up these experiments. Speed up these experiments. My guy. Okay. Later, Ishii says that they have produced a virus 60 times more powerful than the, your normal, natural bubonic plague, and they have produced enough of it to kill mankind. They also have cultivated millions of bubonic plague-infected rats and fleas to better spread it. An officer reports to him that Sergeant Kawasaki has been abusing the youth corps, and this has been causing unrest. I have a bit of confusion in this part because... Ishii replaces Kawasaki with another officer, but later we see Kawasaki still in charge of them, so I'm not entirely sure what actually happened. There's a scene where Kawasaki gets the shit beat out of him by a yes, youth corps. but that's after this. So uh. at that point, Kawasaki is still a command of the youth corps. So it seems like hmm. he's been replaced, but that guy doesn't do that thing for some reason. Unknown. I'll, I might have to go back and check that. I was gonna say, do not. I'm say not gonna, gonna rewatch re this. this. <laughs> I'm not gonna, no thank you. I'll leave that bit of confusion to the side. That's fine. An offering to the confusion gods. In uh, the next scene, we see Lieutenant General Ishii having some times with some ladies, by which I mean he is abusing them and forcing them to have sex with them. No, 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 no. Yes, that is accurate. What you are leaving out is there is a scene where he gives a woman a sake massage. Uh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and it is a lingering, languorous, lugubrious sake massage yeah. scene. And I was just like, isn't it going to get sticky? It's nasty and we don't like it. And also he rips the lady's arm hair, armpit hair out. Yes. Question mark. So he's being abusive with these likely sex workers and it's weird. One woman also tips over a vase, which falls to the floor, breaks, and flings a bunch of beads around and this gives him an idea yeah. 
But I also want to take a historical note uh, aside to say that Ishii was like this. He was an infamous drinker, gambler, and womanizer. He was an incredibly chaotic person with a very devious private life, despite being a high-ranking officer. I don't know how such a mess of a human being managed to get as far as he did, but he was pretty much garbage in every regard. Love that for him. So after this, he demonstrates in, I think, another assembly, his, this yeah. idea by throwing up a ceramic vase, letting it fall to the floor, shatter, and spread a bunch of those beads everywhere. He's demonstrating how they're going to create a ceramic vessel for their bacterial bombs, which they do. We next see soldiers unloading porcelain vessels, rather ceramic, um, vessels from military trucks as prisoners are being mounted on two posts and stakes and crosses in a, an airfield before they are to be tested on. Basically, they melt from the bacteria, which isn't really how that works, whether it's the Question bubonic mark. plague or anthrax or anything of the like. It doesn't melt your face off. But that's what happens here. So I don't know exactly what they were throwing at these guys. Yeah, I honestly attribute it to just... To, to show somebody dying of the plague on camera would actually be really boring. It would be, yeah. I mean, it's huh, nasty and it's bad, but it, it takes a while. Yeah. In the next experiment, we, we get the infamous pressure chamber experiment. The scientists force a prisoner into a pressure chamber and crank up the pressure until his intestines roll out of his butt. Yeah. The effect here looked cool. Yeah. It was very interesting and a little jarring. Yeah. I did check and yes, this was an actual experiment that was conducted uh, by Unit 731, but it was intended to test how much pressure a human being could take during high-altitude flight. Afterwards, a bunch of officers order Sergeant Kawasaki to find them a healthy young man, weird and possibly gross, but they don't elaborate what they need one for. I don't know how he would be ignorant of this, because Kawasaki has definitely seen some of the, the dark shit going down in the compound. But um, he does that thing. And we get another experiment scene. This is a gas experiment. A female Russian prisoner is rolled into a glass chamber with her daughter while she begs to let her daughter go. Gas begins to fill the chamber while an officer keeps time. We see a bird that was in the chamber die. And then the mother and daughter die shortly thereafter. I did read an interview in which an officer specifically recounted an experiment that was just like this. There was a, a Russian prisoner with her daughter who uh, were subjected to, I don't remember which, which type of gas it was. It may have been chlorine mm -hmm. gas. And they died. Pretty fucking awful. Do you know what the purpose of the bird was? Was it like a canary in a coal mine situation? I think so. I think it was just okay. to show uh, the lethal level of gas in the chamber. Gotcha. Next, Kawasaki orders Ishikawa to help him bring in a young boy. So Ishikawa brings in the little mute boy he met over the fence, not knowing what he's going to be used for or what's going to happen. Kawasaki uses him for surgery. Promptly, he takes him into the surgery room. He doesn't know what's going on. He's kind of just like playing with the surgeons and laughing. They put him on a table and put him to sleep and then promptly open him up and remove his organs. And then Kawasaki forces Ishikawa to dispose of his, maybe his only friend's body. This fucks him up real bad. 
So Ishikawa goes back to the youth corps, and the youth corps conspire to kill Kawasaki. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> this scene is interesting because they don't understand why he was killed and why they killed a boy who was not, quote-unquote, a Maruta. He was not a prisoner, therefore he was not one of them. Like, it, it just does not compute for them. The boys then stage an attack on Kawasaki using wooden implements, and they kick his fucking ass. I thought he died. I thought so too. He does not. Yeah. But he looks dead. I thought he did. <laughs> the next scene is my least favorite scene in this whole fucking movie. Yeah. Lieutenant General Ishii has has his officers with him in another like experiment chamber where he throws a cat into a chamber filled with bubonic plague rats. The rats overtake and eat the cat while the officers look on. Ishii compares this scene of the rats beating the cat to Unit 731 and Imperial Japan defeating its enemies. It sucks. And I hate the scene. I know that Unit 731 did experiment on animals, mostly farm animals, because that's what what was available, and rats, obviously, but this fucking sucked. Fuck this. I think this and the um, the young boy being undressed for that, that dissection were, like, the two things where we were just like, we can't even funny our way out of this, like, Oh, no, impossible. they're the most, two of the most upsetting scenes I have watched with my eyeballs. Yeah, same. Next, there is a breakout. The prisoners have seized the opportunity to break out of the compound. Uh, sirens start wailing as prisoners flee down a corridor, only to be trapped and gunned down. One prisoner tries to convince another not to run because he has another plan to get out, but the man still runs, and ultimately most of these people are killed. The people who were caught are kind of like re-imprisoned and prepared for a later experiment, but uh, Lieutenant General Ishii admonishes the other officers for allowing so many of the prisoners to be killed, considering they are very precious experimental material. And as a historical note, there were a couple of breakouts there was one notable breakout at Zhang Ma Prison in which several prisoners were actually able to escape and join up with anti-Japanese partisans in the forests, um, although some are theorized to have frozen in the snow. Another breakout happened at the Pingfan compound in which some 100 prisoners tried to escape, but they ended up trapped in the courtyard and they were gassed to death. This is likely the scene that was replicated here because Ishii was deeply upset by this. He made it a priority to make sure that the prisoners generally lived well despite the experiments being forced upon them. They ate well and he wanted to make sure that they were healthy. Using them as fodder for his work was very important and making sure that they were healthy was very important. So this to him was a waste. After this, the prisoners who attempted to escape are mounted up to posts and crucifixes in an airfield for a bomb test. Meanwhile, Lieutenant General Ishii is actually away. Um, He has left the compound to be with his family for a short time, and he receives a telegram regarding the bombing of Nagasaki and the declaration of war by the Russians. They promptly try to call off their bomb tests, and the prisoners at the site are already trying to escape. They've kind of gotten out of their bindings and are trying to run. The Japanese take up the chase to cut them down or run them over to stop their escape. And this is pretty rough. I believe the youth corps are also involved in trying to put down this escape. Mm -hmm. So they encounter some pretty nasty scenes uh, trying to stop the prisoners. 
Ishii receives the message that Nagasaki has been bombed, so he returns to Unit 731, and once he has returned, he announces that the compound is to be raised. All of the experiments will cease, and all of the prisoners will be executed. All of his officers and personnel will carry a bottle of potassium cyanide to end their lives in case of capture. One officer attempts to preserve the data from the experiments, much to his wife's protests. He tries to intervene as other officers are destroying the evidence, but Ishii demands the data be burned. The officer protests, saying that Japan needs this data in the future and that he must shoot him if they must destroy it. So Ishii shoots him. Then poison gas is released into the compound to kill all the remaining prisoners and workers. The soldiers hastily dig graves to bury the dead, and then the compound is bombed and mostly destroyed, although parts of it remained. After this, the soldiers and staff of Unit 731 march out to a nearby train station. Dr. Ishii addresses the troops and orders them to never speak of this compound again or to have contact with one another. Meanwhile, a woman goes into labor. <laughs> Do we ever find out who this woman... Oh, no, she's the wife of the soldier who was trying to take the data, isn't she? Oh, was it? I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe we just don't know don't who know. the fuck she is. I was not clear on who this was. She's symbolic. Yeah. Um, a disguised prisoner is then uncovered, and he tries to lash out and attack the, the lieutenant general, um, only to be struck down and killed at the same time as the woman gives birth and the train leaves the station. He is struck down and killed <laughs> by a soldier wielding a Japanese flag, which he impales yeah. the Chinese man with because symbolism. Yes. Symbolism. Ooh. Very poignant. Very on the nose. Very, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. All right. Did you like this movie, Chris? <laughs> That's I liked it more than Philosophy of a Knife. <laughs> uh, but like is a strong word. Um, I think mm -hmm. that this film could be considered important mm -hmm. if you want to try and remove any of the director T.F. Mao's moves, moves sentiment. I'm not sure. I tried to find a pronunciation, but failed. Yeah. I think if you can sort of remove his obvious sentiments, which I don't think are necessarily not called for, like he's yeah. Chinese, he is allowed to feel the way he feels, but I don't yeah. think you could consider this an objective look at Unit 731, but I do think it could be considered probably the only good depiction, mm -hmm. good, not a good word, of, yeah. of it's the events. almost accurate. Yes. It's the closest to accurate we've gotten. Yeah. So yeah, I wouldn't say I like it, but it gets one kudo. Yeah. I feel the same way. This was a hard watch. I did not exactly enjoy it, but I appreciate it for what it was. And I appreciate the intent the director had behind making it. Regarding the opening passage, friendship is friendship, history is history. Mm -hmm. Mao said of the quote, that's the argument I had with the Chinese government when he was trying to make this movie. Hmm. Uh, because the government said, no, we have a friendship with the Japanese. And he said, well, you can talk about your friendship. I am talking about history. Chinese officials were concerned about damaging relations with Japan with this whole digging up all of this horrific bullshit, but they ultimately gave him the green light to produce the film. It was kind of a collaboration between Hong Kong and China. Um, and I believe he was also given access to the original site of the Unit 731 compound to film at. Interesting. Or at least some of the remnants. Some other production info um, for FX. There's some... Mm. unethical use of real corpse parts in this movie. Yeah. He used real corpse parts and real cadavers 
for several scenes, um, including the frostbite experiment with his niece. His niece was the only person willing to hold corpse arms for this fucking scene. Huh. <laughs> That's a lot. I don't shy from dead people parts. I have some. But, like, unless that person donated their body to this movie, I'm like, ah, that's, right. that's a little, that's a person. Yeah. Um, one of the major things that I think takes away from this movie is the ironically unethical actions yeah. in the making of it. TFMO also used real autopsy footage of a little boy being dissected for the scene in which the little Chinese boy is uh, autopsied. Uh, he had asked the local police to notify him of any young boys who died of accidents or diseases around the time of their production so that he could film the autopsy. He claims that he received permission from the boy's parents to do so. However, I'm very dubious of this because as we're about to find out, he has made other claims that have been refuted by cast members it's really hard to say whether he's being honest or if he's just trying to cover yeah. his ass. In the the scene with the cat, TFMU claims that he used a real cat, but it was not actually harmed, that it was coated in a red-dyed honey, and that it was then licked off by the rats. Those rats are not licking. I don't think that's the case. Um, no. The scene is very convincing if it is fake. It's not. This account is also disputed by other crew members who allege that he made it up as a cover story for having killed the cat, as well as the rats in that scene. The rats, I couldn't find a good source for it, but I did read that the rats were just caught wild around this area. So they're mm -hmm. not like trained rats. These are feral rats. And also they were killed after filming. So God, it sucks. It really sucks. There was a bunch of animal abuse in this film that fucking blows. Yeah. Yeah, fuck that. Also, regarding the pressure chamber scene, he said they dug a hole beneath the actor's torso and pumped animal entrails through the pipe so that it would appear realistic, but no pump would do the job, so they found a big guy who was willing to blow down this pipe. <laughs> it was very. It was a very difficult special effect, considering it took three days to construct. Woof. Again, no special effects industry in China at this time. Huh. Due to the, the controversial nature of the film and its subject matter, T.F. Mo was prepared to produce the film entirely by himself. Although he had the permission of the Chinese government, uh, investors were afraid to back it, up until he met one investor who insisted on producing it, regardless of whether or not it was a flop. Uh, he very much felt that this film needed to be made. Still, T.F. Mo invested 36% of the production himself. Damn. He based Men Behind the Sun largely on research from Russian sources, uh, with some material supplied by Japan and the U.S. National Archives. He also interviewed locals near area, near the compound of Unit 731, but most of them knew nothing about what was going on. Did you almost say Area 51? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> There's so many numbers and areas and units. Yeah. Regarding the reception, I'm sure you can guess this was a pretty rough one for censors, especially <laughs> yeah. in the 80s. I believe this was the height of, like, video nasty hysteria in England. And I don't think this is con considered a video nasty is the weird thing. That is the weird thing, but I think they were able to cut it down enough that it passed. So there were significant cuts made to the film to be able to show it in the UK. 
but it was outright banned in Australia. And in Japan, the backlash was incredibly severe. TF Mao received death threats, and distributors received threats to burn down their theaters. He also received, rightly so, intense criticism for the animal abuse. Multiple sources that I read regarding Man Behind the Sun pretty much agree that while this film was like so close to being a good historical depiction of what occurred in Unit 731, the nature of like the exploitative bullshit behind the scenes, the extreme grisly violence shown on screen, it all kind of takes away from the movie itself as being kind of like a a valuable educational film, you know? He also claimed to have screened Men Behind the Sun for a number of Unit 731 members who were part of the youth corps depicted in the movie. According to him, one of the old guys stood on stage and said that Man Behind the Sun was the truth. And that he was there during the war as a Japanese soldier. He then said that they did more terrible things than the film documented. That's cool. Right on. That's pretty great. I love that we watched this movie. Yeah, it was. it's a lot. It's a lot on the mind and soul. So now that we're here, how about you talk about philosophy of a knife? Oh, but what if I didn't? <laughs> I'd be fine with All that. Right. Uh, end of podcast. Let's go to bed. Yeah, for real. All right. I might even skip through parts of my write-up on this because this movie is so goddamn long. We'll find out. So, before I dive into the meat and bones of Philosophy of a Knife, (laughs) I want to start with a note on the format of the film. This film is not linear. There is no plot, necessarily. What there are are four sort of narrative through lines throughout the film that I'm going to refer to in a desperate attempt to make any of the things I'm about to say track or follow as I'm taking you through it. Number one, there is a historical narration provided by Stephen Tipton. He's never done anything else. Uh, It's pretty much impossible to understand him at parts of the film because there are no subtitles and the sound mixing is non-existent. Yeah. It's not there. All of the volume is at the same level, and if you've never listened to something where all of the volume is at the same level, if you've ever gotten aurally overwhelmed in a setting, this is that feeling. It's bad. And it sounds bad. Number two, you have a fictional narrative by a female nurse played by Manouche, who um, is supposed to be serving Unit 731 and took part in the experiments. She spends most of her narrative through line bemoaning her role and the actions taken against prisoners in the name of the Emperor. Three, we have interviews with an old Russian man named Anatoly Protasov, who talks about the actions that the unit took and what was going on at the compound. I'm going to touch on him again in a moment. Don't touch him. (laughs) I will not touch him, but we will... Uh, allude to him briefly in a moment. Uh, And four, we have a Uh. wild story arc, I'm putting that in quotes, uh, about a Japanese soldier having a coercive romance, question mark, uh, with one of the prisoners. Story arc is, like, very generous. Yeah, it's uh, a a number of scenes that are sewn together with the most wild close-up shots I've ever seen. (laughs) We were laughing. We were laughing at these shots. Oh my god, the cinematography. I know that Iskanov, the director, producer, writer, I know he's made other films. You can't tell. (laughs) Can't tell. So those are the four sort of threads that comprise the not work of this film. I want to also preface by saying, please assume everything in this film, other than the things Donna has already called out has as definitely having happened, is preceded by the word allegedly. Very 
allegedly. Yeah. The amount of liberties that Iskanov takes with this film are so egregious. I tried really hard to look into some of the other things he depicts in this that Men Behind the Sun didn't, and I could not find anything. And I know that part of that is because most of the evidence is inaccessible for a variety of reasons or non-existent. But like, I honestly feel like he just threw bubblegum at a wall and hoped some of it just stuck there. Yeah, he certainly took some liberties. Yeah. So, as we mentioned earlier, this film is four hours long and it is divided into two parts. The opening text reads, quote, All events shown in this film actually occurred and have been carefully recreated after studying archival materials, litigation evidences, and memoirs of eyewitnesses. Sure. 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 He refers to it in these opening text boxes slash title cards as an artistic representation, to which we again say, sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so he's really setting it up to be a documentary. Yes, he is. It's not. Don't believe everything that's in this movie. Some of the things are analogous to what we've already seen in Men Behind the Sun, but a lot of it, I think he just fucking made up. Yeah, I do too. As the movie begins, I want you all to close your eyes and let me paint you a word picture. And the word picture is the word snow. Just <laughs> snow. Imagine everything I describe, and I mean literally everything, is punctuated by these long lingering shots of snow falling on various quote-unquote Japanese landscapes. It's Russian. I'm not gonna call them out, but I promise you I counted because we do have a snow count for both we parts. Do. So yeah, everything here snow and it's always in like three rapid successions of like mm -hmm. one two three for some weird reason. I don't fucking know. Snow, snow, snow. The first 15 minutes of this film can be summarized as two Japanese soldiers are walking a male prisoner slash enemy soldier around in waist-high snow. There's more snow. There's pensive looks. There's snow. There's more pensive looks. There's more snow. There's the same looped sound effect of wind blowing through like a hollow, just repeated, odd infinitum. And then the soldiers finally stop taking forever to walk around the same building we've seen them round the corner of more than four times, so it is a non-Euclidean-ass building. And they force the soldier that they have, are holding captive to kneel. One of the Japanese soldiers unsheaths his sword roughly five times in a series of rapid cuts. It's a lot. And this included the trope that you called uh, audible sharpness. Yes. And so Love it's it. like five cuts, audible sharpness every time the sword is removed from ching. the sheath. Like, ching! ching. <laughs> he does that minimum five times. Um, and then beheads the, uh, the prisoner who um, I noted earlier is Russian. I'll just say it now. Yeah. It's I've noted it a few times. Um, despite the fact that the majority of prisoners that Unit 731 kept hostage were Chinese, all of the people in this are white and yeah. Russian. Very questionable. Very concerning. Doesn't Gosh. make sense. Russians made up the minority of prisoners used by Unit 731. Most of them were for sure Chinese. Yeah. Don't know why so many of these prisoners are white folk. What the yeah. fuck? This is just one of those things where it's like, I can't excuse it. There are Chinese actors in the world. Find them. Yeah. Just find them. Yeah. This is the first 15 minutes of the film is the scene I just described, and we are already at snow count 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, after this beheading scene, we do get our title card. And by title card, I mean <laughs> a roughly 15 minute long title sequence um, that includes 
spinning skeletons, flying speculums, <laughs> medical clip art just sort of flying around All doing of its these, own thing. Like weird medical assets just thrown into this intro sequence because I guess he just had it and needed to use it. Yeah. Like I swear he bought like a, a brush pack for Photoshop and then remembered he had it. Yes. And was like, oh, I have to use this. This is all also intercut with B-roll of brains and body parts and textures and gooshy things that we don't know what they are. And it just feels like a ripoff of the title sequence to Seven yeah. or possibly the entirety of Tetsuo the Iron Man. Because if you were to put these movies side by side, we're already halfway through Tetsuo. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. It's bad. The soundtrack almost fucks. We'll it almost that. fucks. It's close. It, it reminded me of Tetsuo quite a bit, but it's yeah. just not quite there. So we have this 15 minute long title sequence at the end of which we get what is possibly the single most egregious act of war that Andrei Iskanov could have committed, which is saying that this film is devoted to all of the victims of war, both the executioners and their victims. Excuse me while my eyeballs roll out of their fucking sockets, you fucking edgelord. Yeah, this summarizes the film's edginess in one concise sentence. Yep. And it's it, so egregious. Oh my god, it's bad. All right. So this film begins with a briefing on the Sino-Japanese War, but Donna's was better. It also briefs us a little bit on Russia's involvement in supporting the Chinese and resisting the Japanese invasion. The very short version of this whole segment is that our narrator paints the Bolshevik Revolution as a great evil spearheaded by Lenin that kicked off revolutionary leanings in China that Japan has repeatedly tried to crush. This lays the foundation for the future Japanese-Chinese tension that we're going to talk about and that has already been talked about and created a fertile soil for communism to take root in China. We never talk about this again. Yeah, pretty much. And it has almost fucking nothing to do with anything in the movie. Yeah, we get easily like another 15 to 20 minutes narrative about this, which is important to the lead up to World War II. It's completely irrelevant to this movie. He could have skipped it. Could have skipped it. Wish I'd skipped it. Yeah. All of the reviews for this movie say to watch it at one and a half to two times speed, and they're right. They are correct. This whole sequence does introduce us to Anatoly Protasov, a former military translator and doctor who recalls that he was eight years old when the Japanese came to Harbin. We're going to spend the next three to four hours wondering how someone who was eight at the time <laughs> knows as much as he does. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to just tell you now, dear listener, we will find out three out of four hours later, he was one of two people capable of translating Unit 731's medical documentation for use in the USSR trials of 12 former officials. That's the most fascinating part of this film. Yeah, and they wait until the last leg of the movie to bring this up. For the whole time, Chris and I were like, who the fuck is this guy? And he, is he just making shit up? Yeah. Like, how could he have known any of this? We did not know until the very end. The thing is, I would watch a major motion feature on that immediately. Yeah. If you told me that was getting made into a movie, I would watch it. I would watch a documentary about it. I think that's the, the most fascinating way to learn about these types of atrocities. And we don't find out until we have already blood, sweat, and tears our way through the first three hours of this film. Yeah. It is a crime against me and uh, against my divinity. Uh, direct <laughs> attack on it, you might say. Yes. Yes, it is. Also, a lot of Protasov's commentary feels real steeped in anti-Chinese, pro-Japanese propaganda, and it's really hard to get a feel for where he stands, which I find very upsetting because Iskanov yeah. is definitely trying to present this as objective. Yes, he has a lot of bizarre shit to say about the Chinese and is very yeah. critical about the Russian government and ultimately comes off sounding very pro-imperial Japanese 
And that's a wild fucking stance to have for a Russian man who lived in Harbin during this time period. Yeah, it's so weird. I, it's weird. No notes. <laughs> he had mostly good things to say about the Japanese. Yeah, we do get more narration about the outbreak of the war, but again, Donna said it better, so I'm kind of just gonna jump in to Protosov describing the facility as a two-story square prison with electrified fencing around it. This tracks with what we see in The Men Behind the Sun and with most of the remaining documentation we have access to. And then we are introduced to our nurse played by Manoush, who is describing the treatment of the prisoners at the facility. She explains that they would be washed, dried, deprived of food and water before entering experimentation. Her narrative is playing over this scene of her playing a mouth harp while chilling yeah. next to a dead body that is teeming with maggots. Yeah, this is very artistic, but in context was very laughable and bizarre. This felt like a dream sequence from David Lynch. I got fucking nothing on this. <laughs> yeah fucking nothing um and again just imagine isabella rossellini recounting to you the most horrible things man can do to other man and you've got a pretty good feel for this entire narrative nurse situation plus mouth harp plus mouth harp so just imagine like wow 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 going on <laughs> i guess that's more of a didgeridoo but a whatever. little bit <laughs> oh well so we see a pregnant Russian prisoner sitting next to the nurse played by Manoush, and they're making a bouquet of dead twigs, leaves, and flowers. Question sure. mark. Sure. And then the prisoner undergoes experimental surgery to forcibly remove her fetus, which appears to be unviable for life based on its size. And then the nurse narrates that pregnant women usually had their fetuses surgically removed for experimentation, and if the separation didn't kill them, they would be healed to be used in subsequent experiments. The amount of blood spray that comes out of this woman's chooch <laughs> is Tarantino-esque. Yeah, there's so much blood. The, the doctors aren't delicate by any means. They're just like stabbing into this thoracic cavity, like this just opened belly. Oh my God, it's terrible. It's real bad. They just start throwing like doll parts everywhere. It's like, <laughs> God, it's a lot. It's just so gooshy. This is the first time we realize that Andrei Iskinov knows nothing about human anatomy, and it <laughs> yeah. is not the last. Yeah, no, it's ongoing. So after this horrible thing that happens, we see the same nurse still covered in blood, but now she's sort of washing her face in like an aromatic face wash situation and says, one day there will be nothing left in my soul that I'd want to show anyone. Same. That's true. I felt this. Yeah. We find out that, allegedly, experiments were run to expose subjects to x-rays for prolonged periods of time. We see a lot of angles of an x-ray machine while we're learning about this. It's like up, down, side, <laughs> angle, so many angles. upward, facing, angle. And then a Russian man is brought in and laid on the table, secured to it by some scientists who are wearing the most, like, nightbreed Dr. Decker yes. ass masks I've ever yeah. seen. Probably completely inaccurate, but, like, looked cool. And that's the story yeah. of this movie. <laughs> yes, Wholly inaccurate, sometimes looks cool, sometimes looks like doll parts getting thrown around in a Gucci pile. <laughs> yeah. I was fully expecting one of these doctors to take off his mask and be David Cronenberg. Like, it really looks like a bad Dr. Decker yes, cosplay. They x-ray this prisoner until he turns black. I know that they did x-ray experiments. I have no idea what the result was or what their intent was. I don't think it just turns your skin black, question mark. Very yeah. bizarre. And I don't mean like blackface black i mean like a negative of a photograph black yes it's very weird we cut away from this scene for a while and then when we come back to it we find out that he has tumors on his face 
Uh, Yay. That happens that quickly. Oh, no. um, also, the prosthetic that they use for the tumors is, like, visibly lifting yes. up off of his it's face. It's so obvious. It hurt. It hurt to watch. Yeah. So, the nurse narrates that in 1944, there were three women and a child in prison. Only. Only. Just those guys. That's it. All of the Chinese people we talked about previously, I guess, weren't yeah. there anymore. <laughs> they went on it's vacation. It's not like Ping Fong could hold uh, at least 300 prisoners at any given moment, and definitely did. Nope. Those things, not real. This, this is the real story that they don't want you to know, which is that there were three women and a child. Two of the women were Russian. The third was Chinese. We never see her. And there was a girl aged four or five, allegedly. Allegedly. This is where we're introduced to our prisoners and our main Japanese soldier. Three things. First of all, we only see white or non-Asian prisoners like we mentioned earlier. This feels irresponsible. Yeah, this is not not okay. Second, all of the prisoners have like full face of makeup on. Eyeshadow, mascara, impeccably blended foundation yeah. that you can't tell because it's in black and yeah. white, but incredible full face. These ladies fucking sat in a chair before they went into this prison. <laughs> yeah, there is no method acting here in philosophy of a knife. There is no verite. This is just the bad porn version of horrible things happening. Yeah. The most boring porn I've ever seen in my life. For real. So much snow. <laughs> Third, if you pay attention to any scene in which these female prisoners are walking, they are clearly wearing heels. Yes. Doesn't make sense. Who cares? I got fucking nothing for you here. Historical accuracy? Don't need it. Fuck it. So we mentioned this earlier, all of the camera angles that are used <laughs> in the scenes with the prisoners and the Japanese soldier are inconceivable. They are only ever shot like from below with the camera rising upwards yes. beneath their chins, yep. like every time the scene cuts away. Only the most unflattering angles at any <laughs> given time and they close in closer and closer and eventually there is one shot that is literally just the, the prison guard's upper head, not even his, <laughs> his nose. Nostrils. It is his eyes and his forehead and his hat. And I'm it's like, so what are we ridiculous. supposed to fucking see with this? There was one point where we were like, surely it's not going to zoom in any further. And then it cut back to him and it did. And we were like, are you oh fucking my kidding God. me? Oh my god, Andre Iskanov, someone get this man, uh, I was gonna say a DP, but don't get him a DP, get him a director of photography. Yes. Ay. Don't DP him, please. <laughs> While we're getting introduced to this young man's nostrils, Protosov, the Russian man, mentions that he saw some of the officers after their capture, and they, uh, they didn't look like monsters, but the media just made them out to be. To which we say, sure. Get fucked. <laughs> also, sure. Sure. <laughs> He multiple times throughout this movie, he implies that these men were just following orders, which if you've ever read anything about World War II, we will remind you that just following orders isn't an excuse. Yeah, it kills people. Yeah. But again, the film presents this almost objectively, and that's horrifying. It is gross. Irresponsible in the extreme. Yeah, the most. Next, we see a female prisoner strapped into a chair and connected to what seems like a heart rate monitor or electrocardiogram, but... It doesn't really matter. They tape a bunch of shit to her face that is clearly meant to be electrodes, <laughs> yeah. but is just like pieces of paper. It doesn't make sense. And then they start removing her teeth one by one with a pair of pliers. And like parts of the scene 
I'll, I'll, I'll say it. They look really fucking cool. Yeah. The prosthetic that they use for, like, her lower jaw missing the teeth mm-hmm. is really, really neat and bad to look at. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that when she moves, you can also see her actual teeth are still there. Yeah. They they try to cover up her teeth with a ton of blood that just ends up spilling out anyway. Yeah. And again, like, it's geyser territory with the blood. And yeah. I don't know. I've had a lot of oral surgery and it doesn't bleed that much. Yeah, it's absurd how much uh, blood comes out. Yeah. We then cut to uh, Anatoly Protasov again, talking about the, I guess, rampant prostitution. This is intercut with a scene where a male prisoner is forced to sexually assault a female prisoner at gunpoint. There is not a lot to talk about in this scene, aside yeah. from the very worst Osmosis Jones reboot I've ever seen. <laughs> oh no! Oh, which God. is that the point of this particular scene is uh, the transmission of syphilis. Yeah. We know that this male prisoner has syphilis because every time we look at him, we then subsequently immediately cut to uh, a bunch of bacteria squirming under a microscope. Yeah, that's how we know. You just see microscope bacteria and yep. I guess that's just cooking up in his body. Yep. And then after he assaults this woman, we do the same thing with her, where every time we see her, we also now cut to bacteria under a microscope. It is, again, like, this is not funny. There is no. literally nothing funny about this. But the utter ineptitude with which this man uh, has filmed and choreographed this scene and edited it yeah. is so unbelievably gauche. It is the least graceful thing I've ever seen, especially in regards to this very delicate subject matter. Yeah. I wouldn't trust this in the most profoundly talented director's hands, nonetheless this motherfucker. (sighs) This is probably the edgiest scene in the film, I would say. Yeah, I think so. And the music is just some wheat-wooing synthesizer beats the whole time. It's a whole thing. Yeah. And then afterwards, the male prisoner is sent to the gas chamber where, uh, as we so adroitly learned from the men behind the sun, that when you are exposed to chemical gases, your face melts off. Yeah, that's how that works. Yep. We also see, this is uh, widely considered the film's crowning achievement. Uh... A scene where a bubonic plague-infested cockroach is inserted into another female prisoner's vagina. Uh, we will leave this scene alone for about another hour and a half because I just want to remind you there's at least that much left. Yeah. And when we do come back, we will watch the roach travel up through this woman's body and out of her mouth. <laughs> it, it, you can, like, see it in her skin somehow. <laughs> like the scarabs from the mummy. Like, it doesn't make or any like, fucking sense. Yeah. Hey, if you've ever consumed cumflation porn, you know it's really common for the cum to come out of their mouths for some reason. So I think that Andreas Ganov just studies at the the cumflation school of medical science. I choose to believe it. (laughs) This clearly makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we sure do see that. Also, at some point, the doctors deflesh this woman's head, and that's when the cockroach comes out of her mouth. Ah, yes, that's correct. Fully alive, by the way. The cockroach unfazed yeah just chilling and the camera like stays on it for a very long time while it chills out on this lady's skinless head and it's uh almost funny maybe these movies have broken us but this was just so fucking absurd yeah that i was just like okay yeah this tracks (laughs) this might as well happen also Every single one of these immaculately made-up Russian female prisoners have the most also immaculately shaved uh, pubic landing strips. Yes, they do. Uh, Despite being prisoners. Impressively well-groomed for being prisoners in a death camp. 
You did say Ishii made sure they lived well. Oh, that's the worst thing. That's... Yeah, I'm sorry. You're, that's you're not fired. funny. That's fucked uh, up. I'm fired. You're fucked up. This is the end of part one of the movie, by the way. And we know because it says, you have been watching Andre Iskanov's Philosophy of a Knife like it's a fucking adult swim bumper. <laughs> it really was. It was very much like that. We do get the entire set of closing credits, uh, which includes the no animals were harmed in the making of this film disclaimer. So that roach is already doing better than that cat and those rats. Oh, R.I.P. That cat and those rats. R.I.P. Also, we were at snow count 30 something by the end of the first part of the film. So this brings us to part two. Somewhere in here, in all of this, we also started the romance between the Japanese soldier and one of the Russian prisoners. Again, that's all of the weird angled close-ups where they're sort of making eyes at each other. And then here we see the Japanese soldier sort of weirdly, awkwardly caress the female prisoner's shoulder. She's into it. It's bad. Cool. It's fucked up. It's bad. Hey, this is coercion, to put it lightly. He brings his girlfriend slash prisoner of war a cute shirt that looks like it's from Charlotte Roots and would not have existed in the year 1943. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's like a flowy halter top sort of situation. They smile at each other while some Donkey Kong music plays. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it did. It sure did. It was just like some gentle bongo drums and synthesizers. And then the other female prisoners of war and her boo, I guess, watch her just take off all of her clothes and put on this Charlotte Russe masterpiece in front of everyone. Again, no body hair. Yeah, none. none. Perfectly clean. Not a one. Yes, like a Barbie doll. Then shortly afterwards, there's another scene where it is established through a number of awkward nasal close-ups that this female prisoner is pregnant with this soldier's child, uh, and she is subsequently brought to a medical room where uh, she has an abortion performed on her forcibly. Obviously, this is all being implied it's his child, and... We, again, get just the most buckwild, gooshy pieces of fetus being removed one at a time, just sort of arbitrary flailing at this woman's vaginal orifice with some some pliers. There are toy centipedes in this nylon. Yes, that's it. There's, like, questionably placed centipedes, question mark, (laughs) up in this goop and mess. No idea. Not explained. Why are they there? Nope. Is the baby a Purely aesthetic. Is this actually a racer head? Is this the origins of the phrase centipedes in my <laughs> vagina? Oh my god. It's more likely than you think. It might be. <laughs> centipedes? I just, like, we were really lost at the centipedes because, like, it just made no nothing in sense. this film has a diegetic purpose. No. This was... But whoa. This was a choice. I'm pretty sure you can see the made in China on <laughs> in one of the shots, like... Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Oh, oh no. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's bad. I didn't that was literally not a joke. It became one. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh beans. Oh beans. Well, from this point on, philosophy of a knife becomes what I can only describe as a patchwork of human rights violations that are kind of kept together by the nurse's narrative. Anatoly Protosov just rambling question mark and then a lot of snow a lot of sort of body parts piles of dead bodies a lot of sort of just medical errata it's just a little conga line of bullshit yeah this does include um a bunch of uh doctors bringing a male prisoner of war into a room he's all crispy we see him freak out and bite one of the doctors in a scene that is also weirdly overlaid with just sort of a bunch of flowing viscous white fluid yeah unknown Unknown. Maybe cum. Maybe milk. Hmm. 
This prisoner bites the doctor who tourniquets his arm to try and stop the infection, which we now know has been spread because he too has Osmosis Jones microscopic bacteria <laughs> close-ups. He's got little guys in there. Yeah, he's got some pals. Yeah. So he's trying to stop the infection, which I guess fails because suddenly the other doctors try to amputate his arm, starting with scalpels and then I guess giving up and moving on to Bowie knives. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. scientific. Yeah. Extremely professional. Yeah. And then weirdly comically, Protosov notes that there were very few exper or, uh, mistakes made uh, by Unit 731, but you know, they were few and far between, but they happened. Yep. Just like cutting off people's limbs with a Bowie knife. Science. We see this film's take on the frostbite experiment. It's pretty similar to what happened in Men Behind the Sun. The major exception here, and this is weird to me, is that they use a male prisoner who is stripped completely naked, dicks out. This is an odd scene, um, partly because it also doesn't make sense to leave the prisoner completely naked. I don't think that happened. They had to keep no. the person alive. So they would just freeze specific limbs to experiment. But, yeah. I mean, the person had to fucking live to actually do the experiment. I got nothing. We see a doctor cutting another prisoner's head off, handing it to a nurse who then cuts its nose off and then starts peeling the skin off. They boil the degloved, question mark, skull, to make tea. I don't fucking know anymore. And then after boiling it, we see the same nurse just sort of playing with it. Yeah, she takes a really long time trying to peel, like, the, the jerky flesh off of this thing, and it's just, it's a lot, goes goes way too long, she does a bad job, and, uh, that's it. Doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> nope. We see a bubonic plague experiment that shows a subject succumbing to the plague, covered in boils, and then just, like, a whole bunch of blood explodes out of his <laughs> ass. <laughs> and, like, it lingers. It stays there for a very long time, as we watched blood just come gooshing out his beehole. It's a lot. Right out. A lot of blood. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, we see an electric shock experiment where a woman is intubated with, like, a charged wire, and then she's just electrocuted. Interesting. Sure. I don't know why. Probably some artistic liberties on this one. Just a couple. They have an experiment where uh, the nurse narrates that they would sometimes just use enemy weapons on uh, captives to see their effects and how long it would take for a, a person to bleed out from them. So there's a weird montage of the main Japanese soldier priming a bunch of guns and grenades and then we see him shoot a woman and then they time it and they like measure the arterial spray i literally don't care yeah i don't i also don't know why they were measuring like the arterial spray that seems not necessary to know nope the one interesting thing that i'd like to do more research into um is there is an experiment depicted here where the nurse narrates about the use of white phosphorus experimentation and they talk about it being self-igniting when exposed to air and burning at over a thousand degrees. Uh, we do see this done to a prisoner. And I do know that, like, there has been some research into slash use of white phosphorus. I don't know if it was by Unit 731. I don't really know its modern day application. I think it might be against the Geneva Conventions. I don't know. But that was interesting to see. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's against the Geneva Convention. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. chemical. Mm, yeah, good point. I know, science stuff. 
so that's our little handful of experiments that we get, which comprise too many minutes of my long lost life. <laughs> um, and then eventually the narrator explains Germany surrenders in late 1945. Japan is in the final days of the empire. You would hope that the film would be close to over, but there's oh, still yeah. an hour left. Oh no, you got, you got a ways to go, my friend. Yeah. We do see a female prisoner brought out of her cell. She's placed face down on a table and um, some doctors peel the skin off of her back, run electrical rods into the musculature around her spine and also just directly into her spine. And then they have some Hellraiser meat hooks and they peel her back muscles out. This just feels like they ran out of ideas. They're like, we have one more person in this movie. How, Mm -hmm. How do we kill them? I guess we'll just rip her back off. Come on, let's go. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And then there's one final experiment. I'm pretty sure this is like where most of the film's budget went. Um, we see the same vacuum pressure, right? Like vacuum chamber experiment that we did see in Men Behind the Sun. A male prisoner is put inside of a rig. Like it's almost like a sex swing, but it's like also a straitjacket. Yeah. In a pressure chamber where he melts and then also explodes. Yes, that does happen. Again, doesn't really make sense. However, looked decent. Looked Pretty yeah. okay. Looks like uh, a thing. Nine Inch Nails meets Tool video. Yes, it did. The narrator talks about a mass suicide wave as America intensified aggression against Japan. This is all interspersed with archival footage of like little boy being loaded for deployment, the Enola Gay. We lead up to Hiroshima, then Nagasaki. There's a lot of bomb test footage that's used here, including some of the same shots that are used at the beginning of Myra Breckenridge, yeah. which I would recognize if I were blindfolded yeah. and drunk. A bunch of this footage is not actually from like a bomb yeah. drop. It's just testing footage and shit like that. Weird choices all around. Yeah. We get to August 10th, 1945, where the compound is ordered to be cleared out and liquidated. The uh, soldiers begin executing the remaining prisoners with liquid cyanide hydrogen. There's a long sequence. Oh my god, this was forever. Of the Japanese soldier taking his girlfriend slash prisoner of war outside as if he's gonna let her escape. It's all very cowboy bebop here. There's like a lot of slow motion. He shoots her dramatically before he walks off into the woods and we assume gets away. And this is all (laughs) backdropped by uh, like... If you ever had a Casio keyboard and you hit one of the demo buttons, it's like that with some saxophone on top. Yes, it is wild. I don't even have words for it. It's just so atonal and like, what is this supposed to be? What was this story supposed to be? Were we supposed to care about any of these people? And why? Why? Why was this put in? Why? 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 I gotta get that, that clip and put it in here. The nurse discusses the Russians taking Berlin, the Allies raping and killing Japanese and Chinese women. That's not right. Allies raping and killing Japanese women? Yes. That happened. Um, And how the Japan that we used to know has already ceased to exist. She leads to the order for everyone remaining at the compound to commit suicide. As we um, learn in Men Behind the Sun, there was some pushback against that. So many of the men were just ordered to carry cyanide. We see the nurse open her suitcase and unwrap a, a secret tanto, uh, which is a short sword, which she unsheaths again, audibly sharply. Yes, very audible. So audible. She does that about four times before she just kind of gently and slowly presses it into her neck. Yep. Until she dies. Yep. And then some dude in a hazmat suit carries her away. And the thing is, I just don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I should. I mean... But I don't. We had no reason to relate to or sympathize with this nurse at, at all. Yeah. Just the mouth harp. Um, I sympathize with the mouth harp. 
I sympathize with the mouth heart in the Magnus. Yes. <laughs> More um, than her. Also, in this scene, um, Protosov's interview states that all of the Japanese people, all of them, have Buddhist funerals. Okay. Right on, and man. Everything else is Shinto. Cool. True. I'm glad you, yeah. white man, know Thank this. Thank you, sir. So there's still about 30 minutes left in the film at this point. Oh, man. And it's mostly about the narration of uh, the United States occupation of Japan, the release of prisoners, and the restoration of their rights. And so this is where we learn, finally, that Anatoly Protasov um, wanted to help as an interpreter for Russia, but he was labeled a Japanese agent because he did most of his education and um, adolescence and young adulthood in Japan. So he had to prove that that allegation was untrue to start. Afterwards, he served as a document translator for recovered data about biological warfare. Um, he was actually only one of two interpreters familiar with the medical terminology in those documents, um, and so he and the other translator put together a guide for the USSR's tribunal of these 12 uh, officials that they tried. Allegedly, this work was crucial to those trials, and again, I'd honestly rather a movie about that. He says China tried to prosecute the Japanese, but everybody else, the US, all of the other countries sort of poo-pooed the idea and said that it was just communist propaganda. The rest of the film is Protasov recounting the tribunal that the USSR held. He says that no correspondent journalists were permitted. Ultimately, uh, the Japanese officials were sentenced to 25 years in prison camps. We hear a lot about how they were treated very well, allegedly. And then the Russian judges ultimately determined, quote, we had no right to prosecute the Japanese because they hadn't done anything to us, yep. end quote. Yep. And then the movie ends at snow count 46 with another full set of yep. ending credits. 46. I can't believe we got through that whole fucking movie. Kill me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, Donna how you feel about philosophy uh man this never needed to be made <laughs> didn't need to happen didn't need to happen the way that it happened it's irresponsible with its information it's irresponsible with its representation it's way the fuck too long why was it so long why iskanov tell me why why so long yeah iskanov why if this why? is your abject art um, congratulations, I hate it. Oh, man. As as we've learned from episode one, I love <laughs> abject art. This, I struggle to find even abject value in. I would make the argument that the abject value is in uh, The Men Behind the Sun, and that this is toilet paper that has been used. It is pre-used, gently pre-owned <laughs> toilet paper. It really wanted to be Men Behind the Sun, perhaps from a Russian perspective, but it fails miserably. It's not. Ugh. It's bad. I don't like it either. The short version of, of that is I don't like you. Yeah. I don't like yep. it either. Luckily, there's hardly any production information that I <laughs> can find about it. I am too, because if, if Iskanov thinks as much of himself as he clearly does this movie, you'd think there'd be buttloads. I'm going to be honest, I didn't bother to try and find mm -hmm. interviews with him, or at least recorded ones, and I'm not sure any exist, and also I don't yeah. care. <laughs> The reception is overall uh, lackluster. I would say the only people I saw who liked it are people who I went through their other IMDb reviews and I can confidently call them edgelords. Ah, yes. Yes. Um, one quote I did find that I think summarizes our feelings very well comes from the Worldwide Celluloid Massacre, which, if you've never perused, is kind of similar oh. to what we do. Um, their whole thing is that they track down weird, cult, extreme movies and nice. just talk about them. Right on. Yeah, in text format. In their discussion of 
uh, Andre Iskanov's films, and with specific regard to Philosophy of a Knife, they said, quote, I was reminded of Mel Gibson's passion in that the movie takes an ambitious and difficult subject, then spends most of its time focusing only on gore. The cinematography sometimes makes this feel more like a surreal vision of extreme hell than a realistic disturbing docudrama, but this will definitely test anyone's viewing endurance to its limits, end I quote. agree. <laughs> I am inclined yep. to agree. Yep. No notes. Yep, no notes. Not a one. That's it. Uh, hot, hot takes. takes. Um, I think we have similar kind of hot takes. Th- these aren't exactly films that are ripe for interpretation because they are depicting historical events. Yeah. But there is something to be said about ethics in these movies. Why don't you... <laughs> it's <laughs> ethics about and ethics and filmmaking. filmmaking. Um, I'm just gonna do a little jerk-off motion right here. Chris, why don't you begin with your piece? Sure. Inarticulately put, I would say that I don't think that there is an ethical or objective way to produce a film about Unit 731. That probably sounds weird coming from me, a a queer Jewish anarchist trans man who, you know, has family that died in a concentration camp. So I want to unpack why I'm saying that specifically about Unit 731 in a way you haven't heard me say about the Holocaust, the, the other Holocaust that we all know about. So first ethics. Until there comes a day when Japan's government admits responsibility, furnishes information, and really owns up to the true extent of Unit 731 and comes clean about as much of it as it possibly can, we don't know enough about what happened there to ethically make a film without egregious conjecture. And I think any conjecture in this case is considered egregious. This isn't to say we shouldn't tell this story, but I am questioning who should tell it and whether film is really the best medium through which to tell it. I feel it should be left in the hands of the descendants of those who experienced the occupation of Japan. Um, I'm not saying it's their responsibility to tell this story, and I'm not putting that onus on them because I think that has to come from, you know, a personal desire to tell that story, and I'm sure that there are plenty who don't want to, and that's perfectly reasonable and a valid way to deal with generational trauma. Um, What I am saying is that if anyone is in a position to piece this story together in a narrative that feels sincere and that really gives it the gravity it is owed, I think it is the descendants of those people. You could make the argument that rules out the ability to be objective, but I also, you know, hedging everywhere, I would make the argument that there's something to be said for telling a story through lived or indirect lived experience rather than conjecture. He says, having just shat all over a movie that contains a primary source from the post-war era. So, I know, I'm full of shit. But even, like, that primary source is unconfirmed on our part, so I think we have every right to question it. And I think that shows in how irresponsible Andrei Iskanov is. T.F. Mu is more conscientious in his retelling, but again, that subjectivity that is arguably more fair, based on what I'm saying, uh, it's still there. It's It's got an element of propagandism that I feel is exploitive, but I'm also not sure I can fault him for it either. 
So, you know, even The Men Behind the Sun has obviously exploitive elements. And that kind of brings me to the question of the medium of telling this story. Film places the viewer somewhere on a sliding scale between third-person removal and being a voyeuristic participant, and the placement on this scale varies by the film, but it's always there by virtue of the camera as a replacement for our literal ocular lens. We play with this tool in all different kinds of movies. One really easy example that is maybe of a, a more accessible reach is Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void, where the camera literally blinks. Um, there are cuts used to simulate the eye blinking. But the function of viewer presence is, is pretty static in all film, um, regardless of how we do or don't choose to like interface with the camera as that surrogate. This correlates to how we consume the events in a film. We're seeing a curated version of events, and our perspective relies on what the crew making the film wants us to see and how we want to see it, and this creates all kinds of emotions. It can be horror, it can be titillation, it can be anxiety, it can be joy. And while we should experience certain emotions when interfacing with the atrocities of mankind perpetrated against mankind, I'm not going to say which ones they should be, but... I'm not sure it's responsible to try and place us in those events without more evidence because it comes back to that element of conjecture. I don't think we can do it without just creating more speculation or more myth than this story needs. There is so much myth surrounding Unit 731. There's so much myth surrounding Nazi occultism. Like, we have these ideas that are deeply ingrained in pop culture that have some basis in fact, but yes. are so far removed from what we could ever conceivably prove that it feels really irresponsible to keep propagating them. So in this regard, I think the amount of research and detail to outline the history of Unit 731 is, is too cumbersome yeah. for film, especially if we want to try and approach it objectively. I think it feels better suited to a purely historically written text, which might be dry, but honestly, it probably should be. So when it comes back to that sliding scale of participant versus voyeur, I guess you could say that the men behind the sun hovers between the two, at best. Iskanov, uh, philosophy of a knife, it really puts you in the place of a voyeuristic participant in a way that I think is really gross. And like, I, I feel like if you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you know, it takes a lot for me to be like, that's fucking gross. But it just, it feels, it feels like a women in prison film. It feels exploitative. It feels salacious. It feels titillating. And it's not supposed to. And it shouldn't. Because this is the nadir of human act. And unless we are getting a, this story in the hands of a cinematographer, director of photography, director who can keep us at a place of cold removal in the occurrence of these events based purely on fact, or, like I said the hands of someone who has family who lived through, survived this horrible thing. I don't think film is the best way to tell this story, and I don't think it's anyone's place to tell this story other than those people. Well said. Thank you. Um, yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. I think where my approach to this was in similarly in thinking about who is this for and who was this made by, whose voice is being told here, whose story. And both of these films are marred by the fact that they are both exploitative. So I was thinking about the nature of exploitation and exploitation films. Ooh what's being exploited, etc., and, and for what intent. And they are both markedly different from each other, despite both being considered exploitation films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Both of these movies are intentionally shocking, 
but for different reasons, and they accomplish it differently. So for Men Behind the Sun, T.F. Moo's alleged intent was to portray a horrific piece of history that few people knew about until the late 20th century, and still many don't really know much about or actively deny. While his intent might have been to illuminate Japan's crimes against humanity, is his method really justified? (laughs) He actively harmed living animals and used live human bodies. Is his unethical deeds justified in trying to expose unethical human experiments? There's some debate there. Obviously, I think uh, out of either of these two, T.F. Mu has more of a right to be telling this story and his intent is likely, almost certainly likely better, but it, it still is, it is damaged by some of the shit that he pulled creating yeah. this movie and some of the things that he chose to depict in, in Men Behind the Sun. As for philosophy, <laughs> Eskimo's intent is a lot less apparent, but it really just hedges on the side of shocking for shock's sake. I, I think it's just incredibly edgelordy and like you said, very salacious. There's there's like a half-hearted attempt at historical accuracy, but considering the Russian subjects made up the extreme minority of Unit 731 victims, can we even consider this historically accurate? Nah. It, it, he shits in his own soup he he fucks it from the beginning and i don't see any real value to philosophy of a knife or even its methods of exploitation whereas there is some value debatably but there is some in men behind the sun yeah so the question of like who gets to tell this story is very fraught and to begin with we kind of need to acknowledge the nature of grief and trauma and moving on from things like war which I have no real experience with. That's really hard for me to wrap my mind around. But I know that in specific Asian cultures, it's very taboo to talk about these things, especially when it comes to the aspects of the sexual abuse, the sex slavery that occurred during World War II. It was a fucking nightmare. And for a lot of people, the best way forward was to not talk about it. So it's hard to say. And a lot of these people died. We don't know if their family members survived. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know who got to survive and who is alive today to tell their stories, but we do know that there were workers at these camps, Chinese workers forced to do the labor for the Japanese. A lot of them died, but a lot of them survived. There were survivors who can tell their accounts, but do they want to? Yeah. And that's the thing. I respect and appreciate TFMO for trying to tell these people's stories, even if his methods were questionable, but it's really hard to say. Who gets to share this? And is film the best way to do it? I think there is something to be said that film is much more real to people. And it doesn't necessarily have to put us in a voyeuristic position. If we're focusing on Chinese prisoners during a time of extreme oppression, that may be a much different story to tell and one that we haven't really seen. I'm not sure if there are movies out there discussing the prisoner accounts at Unit 731. Obviously, they may not exist, but um, I think that would be an interesting film. Agreed. Thank you. So uh, what would you rate this on a scale of one to five, Chris? Where one is immediately watchable, two is perceive with caution, three is gird your loins, four is content warning minefield, and five is where we're going, you won't need eyes. So I had originally put five for both. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, I find Men Behind the Sun sits more easily at a five, and Philosophy Mm -hmm. of a Knife maybe sits at a four. Yeah, 
I went back and forth on this. Um, I'm comfortable putting them both at a five, mm-hmm. just because philosophy includes way more explicit sexual assault than okay. I would ever care to experience. But then on the other hand, Men Behind the Sun depicts actual uh, autopsies and animal death. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think my reasoning comes from, I thought about the, and this is an apples to apples thing so take take what i'm gonna say in good faith but i thought about the scene in this in philosophy of a knife with sexual assault and then i thought about like the beginning of irreversible and i was like Ugh. well between those two things i would take philosophy of a knife scene <laughs> yeah um because there's fair. no fuck I feel like I'm gonna foot and mouth here, but, like, there is no emotional... There is no attempt to create emotional response by Philosophy of a Knife in a way that there is with other films. It's puerile, it's shitty, and I think because I view the film that way, I'm, like, more reticent to be like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen, because it's not. No, that's true. I mean, it's also packed with so much filler content and bullshit and actual, for real, laughable shit that I'd I'd be fine with putting it at a four. So it's a five-four. 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 Men Behind the Sun wins. Yeah. (laughs) Because it has feelings. Yeah. All right, Chris. What are your final thoughts on these films? <laughs> oh, I forgot we were going to do this. Yay. Yep. Let's, let's talk about it. What's happening right now? So my final thoughts, my final thoughts on Philosophy of a Knife are that I could sell it for $247.99 on Amazon or in what I'm sure is going to sound incredible. <laughs> uh, I could take a machete and hit Philosophy of a Knife very yes. hard. And I think you should, because I think Men Behind the Sun wins this round. Philosophy and Knife can eat shit. And I also want you, in editing this episode, to include audible sharpness Oh, for the machete. Let me draw my machete here. Shing! <laughs> Wait, let me it's do it amazing. five more times. Right, there you go. Bing! Shing! 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 There you go. There you go. All right. I'm going to hit this DVD. Should I take the DVD out of the box or should I hit it through the box? I want to make sure I break the DVD. Just hit it really hard. All right. It's going to be hard because I'm sitting. All right. Okay. This is going to sound really good, (laughs) y'all. That was solid. It did not even break the case. Wow. This movie cannot be killed. I feel like that means I need to keep it, but I also really want to destroy it. You should fucking destroy this thing. Right, it has been in our lives way too long. It serves no purpose other than to take up space and time. Destroy it. I'm, I'm gonna try again. Okay. <laughs> hey, um, it won't die. <laughs> oh my god. It's the Terminator of DVDs. I can't even break it. Oh my god. I swear, I broke the case this time. So it's not that I'm a weakling. It cannot be stopped. It will not stop, ever. I'm gonna try it one more time. Maybe we just need to take it outside and throw it in a bonfire. Or I was gonna say shoot it. Or that. We could. We could definitely shoot it. And I could hit this. That is, that is an option. Still, it's just the case. Oh my god. It's fully. Cannot be destroyed. Fully. Wow. We'll find a way. We'll find a uh, Life uh, finds a way. <laughs> finds a way. So, um. Destroying philosophy and knife finds I'm a way. I'm gonna try one other thing. No? No. Jesus Christ. 
Well, friends. Oh my god, it's Jason Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you want to tell us what uh, next week's movie is going to be? Or next month's? Yeah! Next month's movie is 2017's surreal horror anthology Kuso, directed by none other than the inimitable, potentially inevitable, Flying Lotus. Mm. I'm so excited. I've heard so much about this movie. I can't wait for my brain to be sucked out of my skull. Friends, if you want to prepare yourself for Kuso, uh, look up the music video for Parisian Goldfish. There's there's rotoscoped fucking, you guys. Nice! It's gonna be a time. Hell yeah! So that sounds great. Yeah. Well, all right. Good one. Looking forward to it. Thank you guys so much for listening and tuning in to this probably extra, extra long episode. If you would be so kind, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Chris is looking very sad over his DVD case. It's barely destroyed. Come on. We gotta, we gotta ruin this thing. Yeah. Share us with your friends, maybe your family. Email us at info at shitlistpod.com. Follow us for updates and news on social media at shtlstpod on Instagram and Twitter or facebook.com slash shtlst. Filth is our politics. Filth is our life. Bye. Bye. Bye.